Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. In his work and life, writer James Baldwin often balanced between feelings of despair and faith that the U.S. could be better and become a truly multiracial democracy. It was Baldwin's ability to balance faith and despair as well as love and rage that intrigued Eddie Glaude Jr., who was professor and chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. And it prompted him to write his latest book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America, and its urgent lessons for our own. Eddie Glaude Jr. joins us to discuss the book, Baldwin, and the current moral reckoning he sees upon us. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Eddie Glaude Jr., considers writer James Baldwin one of the most insightful critics of American democracy, and he made Baldwin the subject of his new book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Glout is a professor and department chair of African American Studies at Princeton University, as well as a former president of the American Academy of Religion. He's also author of Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul, and he joins me now to talk about the social and political movement we're in and to apply the lens of James Baldwin to perhaps make more sense of it. And welcome, Eddie Glaub. Good to have you with us. It's good to be with you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I think uh, it was also both a pleasure and an awakening in many ways to read your book. Uh, it's, it's really a fine book, and kudos to you on it. Um, but it's also a book that serves as a kind of awakening to the necessity for a moral reckoning as we see things through the lens of James Baldwin's eyes as you provide them. I want to begin, though, where you began, because... It's also a book that I think is a personal odyssey, and you begin uh, with your roots, uh, you tell us, from Moss Point, Mississippi, and Heidelberg, of all places, uh, where you see a black man screaming with police holding him down, and expressionless people observing this. What a prescient and, in many ways, ominous prophetic moment that was. Yeah, you know, it was, um, it's a strange honor. I was receiving the James W.C. Pennington Award from Heidelberg University, and here I am, a country boy from Mississippi, um, and the literally the first day, I hadn't been in Heidelberg for two hours, and I heard this blood-curdling scream. Uh, and I look and I see uh, German police, Heidelberg police, uh, literally with their knees in the back of a of a black man, pulling his arms back, and and people watching indifferently. And um, it became this occasion. I went I went back to my my apartment and immediately started writing because it became this occasion to reflect on, on what this distance would mean for me. Uh, although I heard the sounds and I didn't understand the language, it was all familiar to me. Um, I didn't have to go on television to talk about it though. I didn't have to brace myself for what might happen in the US because I was away, which gave me a, a kind of space to think about America um, in light of what I had just seen and what I knew so intimately. Which is analogous in some ways to the subject of your book. James Baldwin went to Paris to understand America more fully. Yeah, you know, Baldwin left in 48 and said he had to leave because if he didn't leave, he was going to either be killed or, or kill somebody. You know, the rage that was in him uh, because, you know, living in a society that's constantly denying you dignity and standing, what Baldwin would say in Cambridge in his debate with William Buckley, the thousand cuts that happen daily uh, were taking their toll. And he didn't want to... Uh, at the time that he wrote about it, uh, he didn't want to follow in the path of his stepfather. He didn't want um, the rage to consume and corrode his soul. He didn't want the hatred to take root. So he knew he had to leave. And then he engaged in this extraordinary willful act of creating himself as an artist, making himself into a writer. Uh, and it's in that experience that we get the James Baldwin. Absolutely. And the James Baldwin, as you portray him to us, as you depict him, and as you scholarly bring him to our attention, is 
a man who remained very torn. I was uh, I've studied Baldwin myself a great deal of my adult mm. life, and I was struck by so many of uh, your insights because uh, I found myself thinking more and more of this notion of a moral reckoning as we see through Baldwin's work, where we are in this moment, or where we certainly appear to be in terms of the despair that he interpreted and the suffering that he interpreted in light of nevertheless a feeling somehow of hope uh, and possibility of transformation. It goes back to that boy preacher, I think in many ways, doesn't it? Which he was. Yeah, you know, the church never left him even though he left the church, right? So, you know, Christian language, uh, that moral framework um, um, remained with him until the day he passed away. Um, but I think it's, it's really, I think you're, you're absolutely right that there is this, this aspect of Baldwin's work uh, that is a reckoning. There's a consistency, even though there's a shift in tone because of the change in the material conditions, there's a, there's a consistency of theme. And he wants us to understand that the problem in the country is fundamentally a moral one. And it bound, it, it, it ends up, it's all about who we take ourselves to be. Um, and he says, because he's a, an ardent reader of William James, that we have all of this stuff, this gunk that gets in the way of us seeing the human beings right in front of us. Um, and the nation in particular, right, is so tethered to its illusions and its myths that it refuses to face itself honestly and directly. And all of the consequences that follow from those lies, right, the devastation that follows from those lies, the death that follows from the lies. Talking with Eddie Glaude Jr. and he's professor and chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton. His new book is called Begin Again, James Baldwin's American, it's urgent lessons for our own. And I'm interested in your mentioning William James, uh, Professor Glaude, particularly in light of the fact that he's one of our few really indigenous philosophers gave us pragmatism in some ways James Baldwin perhaps was a pragmatist in many ways because he wanted us pragmatically to confront the darkness of America and still somehow have the faith maybe in the possibility of a new Jerusalem. That sounds pretty pragmatic. Well, you know, that's, that's really interesting. You know, over the course of my career, uh, Baldwin has been a critical resource for how I reread the pragmatist tradition. Um, in my book, In a Shade of Blue, uh, Pragmatism and the Politics of Black America, Baldwin quotes, uh, frame every chapter except for the last one. So he's helping me think through my particular reading of Henry James, I mean, William James and John Dewey. Um, he even invokes William James for a moment, I quoted in the book. But you know, this idea, Baldwin says, hope is invented every day. And that's not an optimistic view. He's not an optimist. He's too blue soaked to be an optimist, right? He's not a pessimist either, but he understands that human beings are at once miracles and disasters. We have to protect ourselves from the disasters that we've become. But wherever we are, uh, we have a chance. There's no guarantee. But if human beings are, are present, and if we are trying to be honest, if we are trying desperately to be honest with ourselves, we give ourselves a chance. Uh, when you talk about James Baldwin being blue-soaked, uh, I can't help thinking... Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you go into a lot of the essays and, and the work, uh, a lot of literary criticism, but I can't help thinking about a, a story that's been uh, very important to me and which I think is maybe one of the best stories, if not certainly right up in the top five of American fiction, and that's Sonny's Blues, where you get an ending that speaks of the possibility, it's right out of Isaiah again, you know, the possibility yeah. of some kind of reckoning uh, and drinking the fury. Yeah, you know, I think there is this sense that, you know, our doings and sufferings uh, will, will come to a head. Um, and we're confronted with the choice, right? That reckoning, you know, it's, it's like Robert Johnson at the, cross, at the crossroads, right, for the blues. We have to face that choice of who, we, who, who will we decide to be? And Baldwin is consistently urging the nation, right, to step into a different level of maturity, right? To leave behind the swaddling clothes, to leave behind adolescence and really step into the fullness of what the nation could be. Uh, but that would require, I think, in, in my reading of him, a kind of uh, unfiltered encounter with the detritus that lies at the bottom of who we are, if that makes sense. That makes good sense. And you also read him in a way that ties in with the historical moment we're in, because as you point out in your book, uh, 
And as you've pointed out on a number of occasions, uh, with the Civil War and Reconstruction, we had one of those moments. And I, I think uh, I'm being a little bit uh, uh, using the Vulgate here, but we blew it uh, after that. And <laughs> then there was a black freedom struggle, and we blew it after that. I mean, you're seeing things again, not only through James Baldwin's eyes, but through your own. And now we're in, yeah. one of, we're in that third moment, really, aren't we? Yeah, you know, and one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book in this way, you know, I, it's not a book about Jimmy, although it is, it's really me thinking with him about our current moment. I'm walking with him, trying to understand something because I wanted to understand how he could be so full of rage and despair and disillusionment because he watched the country turn its back on the black freedom struggle of the mid 20th century. He watched the country kill, assassinate Martin Luther King Jr., an apostle of love and nonviolence, right? He saw the country elect a B-list actor, Ronald Reagan, and he understood the Hollywood fantasy that really informed that choice. And in some ways understood what we, what we would do in 2016. So I wanted to figure out how he could have all, all of those emotions, experience despair at that depth, and yet still hold on to the belief that we could be better that we could be otherwise. Um, and so I had, I, had to, I had to figure out how he did it and how those resources could help me in my own moment of despair and disillusionment as the country turned its back once again on the possibility of being otherwise. And here we are in this moment where the country has to make a choice and we hear all of the old ghosts howling. You know, Donald Trump sounds familiar. He's not just George Wallace or Strom Thurmond. He sounds like Ronald Reagan to me. He sounds like an old America desperately trying to, to cling to life. Uh, and we have to figure out how we're going to respond to those cries. Are we gonna finally put the ghost in the ground, put, tell them to rest? Or will we double down on our ugliness yet again and seal well, the fate of the country? You see him uh, providing us the necessity, if not the imperative, of facing that ugliness. Yeah, you know, you can't, you know, he, he takes Socrates seriously, right? The unexamined life is not worth living, right? So Baldwin says that, you know, if, as I read him, you know, he, ha he begins with this, this, this intense demand for introspection of dealing with the messiness of one's own interior life as a precondition to say anything about the messiness of the world. Because he wants to say it's our ongoing lies that we, it's the ongoing lies that we tell ourselves that then evidence themselves in the world. I remember he went to the South, he writes about this in No Name in the Street uh, in 1972, where he goes to the South and he sees this powerful Southern man who basically sexually assaults him. And he looks into his, his, his you know, film, you know, his watery eyes and he pities him but he's wondering, how does this man, you know, imagine himself because he's constantly lying to himself. Um, and so that reckoning involves telling the truth, not only about the country, but about us. I guess that's why I barely survived writing the book, because I'm thinking I'm just going to write with Jimmy about the age of Trump. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm sitting here grappling with my own vulnerability. With I haven't own... heard him call Jimmy since I interviewed Maya Angelou, by the way. Uh, did you know him? <laughs> No, I, I don't, didn't know him personally. He died in 87, which was my, soft, my junior year at, at Morehouse. But uh, my God, he, I've been walking with Jimmy for 30 years. He's in my head, he's in my spirit, he's in my soul. So I call him Jimmy. And he's also uh, transformed you. As I said, this book is a personal odyssey in some ways. I want to get back to certainly to Jimmy Baldwin, but I wanted to talk with you about your own transformation because to some extent, the two major African-American writers, certainly of your era and mine, were James Baldwin and Ralph Ellison, and then Toni Morrison has to be, of course, included in, that, in, a, in a trinity. But um, it was sort of like being drawn. You were much more to Ellison, and then reading Baldwin put you into your interior life in a way you hadn't expected and also made you understand. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but certainly it comes across in your writing and your prose made you understand the rage. And I was reminded of a book that you may know by Greer and Cobbs, two San Francisco psychiatrists. Oh, yeah. Black Rage. I mean, it was there. Exactly. It was there in that era. Yeah. You know, um, I, I was saying earlier that I barely survived writing the book. Um, I knew that when I was in graduate school, my first year of graduate school, I, I only wrote on Ellison. I wrote a paper on 
Richard Rorty and Ralph Ellison, uh, you know, Michelle Deserteau and Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, right? He was my guy. Uh, you know, because I thought his, I loved his, his, his essays, you know, Shadow and Act and Going to the Territory. They brimmed with philosophical rigor um, and, and they were so elegant. And, and Ellison was elegant in his pose. His, as I write in the book, his mask fit perfectly. Um, so dealing with him, I didn't have to deal with myself and I certainly didn't have to deal with the uncomfortableness of my white colleagues as we read him. But Baldwin was very different. I mean, it felt like he scorched the ground, right? Um, people were uncomfortable. They were red-faced after we read him. And I knew that if I allowed myself to allow him inside, I would have to deal with all of this stuff in me. Um, and when I eventually started reading him and reading him closely, you know, every time um, I, I, I had to go back to my, 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 my relationship with my father, I had to go back to the fact that at the heart of who I am is a vulnerable young black boy who's scared. Um, um, who was so profoundly fearful. Um, and, what, and what happened in writing Begin Again is that I had to tap that, that, that well, you know what I mean? I had to, I had to reach to that, to that source in order to, to allow my pen to stand next to Jimmy's, to, to try to translate and what I was thinking in my spirit um, and, to, and to see how it matched, how it worked with him. Um, and you know, I, I was I wrote a piece not the not too long ago just for myself, uh, and I began by saying every time I sat down to write, I would look up and there would be a glass of whiskey right next to my right hand, because he was just taking me through the ringers, man. Yeah, you know, but I survived. I survived. Well, you know, I survived, but you you produced some very good work, uh, and it, it prompts me to also ask you about. The reception that Baldwin got, uh, particularly during the, the, what would be referred to as the Black Arts Movement, but it was a very militant uh, period. Uh, and he was looked upon with some scorn and this, uh, well, disgust might be too strong a word, but maybe not. You know, he was too soft. He was, uh, as far as the revolutionaries were concerned, he and Ellison both were uh, often derogated for not being part of the revolution and not uh, preaching the revolution, I suppose, didactically enough. Uh, that seems a, an unfortunate uh, blip at this point, but uh, it's one that has to be remedied maybe because he was filled with anger and filled with the desire for major transformation. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes we read black power as just simply this, this explosion of rage when it was much more complicated um, as a political moment. We wouldn't have African-American studies or black studies if it wasn't for the black power era. Uh, we wouldn't have uh, this expansion of black elected officials that happened through, the, you could, we could see it bump after the Gary Indiana convention with the modern convention movement, black convention movement. And Baldwin understood, Jimmy understood the reason, the rationale for the turn to black power. He understood, he disagreed with the kind of, what he called that mystical, those, those students who were so central to SNCC. And he said to them, I, if you promise me that you don't that you will never believe or concede to what the world say about, says about you. I promise you, I will never betray you. And these are kids who were putting, young teenagers, putting their lives on the line in the bowels of the South who would then turn out to be proponents of black power. And Baldwin never said a word, even those, you know, Eldridge Cleaver and the like questioned his sexuality, made horrible claims about his, his dying love for white men or, Leroy Jones and Miri Baraka initially criticizing him relentlessly along with Ishmael Reed, but both Ishmael Reed and Amiri Baraka would later in life come to see how prescient Baldwin was. In some ways, Jimmy was caught between those white liberals he rejected, right? And those black power proponents who didn't quite see what he was calling us to be and what he was calling us to do. Well, Baraka, um, for example, uh, said he was writing for white people. He wrote that famous essay where he said that uh, yeah. Gene Toomer and James Baldwin and Ralph Ellison were all writing for a white audience. Of course, there was hegemony of white people in publishing, but also uh, there was a real kind of almost condemnation of his homosexuality, particularly when Giovanni's Room came of out. Of course. I mean, he, he was out there by himself. I interviewed uh, Angela Davis for the book. And, and he, she was like, she, and as she talked about him, she, she, you know, her eyes just danced. And 
She was like, in so many ways, he was just out there by himself, right? He, he said that he had to come out, right? He, so he said, you can't hold that against me. I told you, right? And so Giovanni room, Giovanni's room is brimming. This is the book that follows, go tell on the notes of a native son. And it has, it has, it makes this abrupt turn, you know, and it, and it introduces uh, a different kind of way of being in the world, not as queer or uh, homosexual. He, he really resisted these categories, not because he aspired to some liberal notion or sentimental notion of human being, but because he wanted people to see each other in the fullness of who they were without these categories that settled questions beforehand. But black power with his hyper-masculinity, with its, with its revolutionary uh, drama, melodrama, let's put it that way, its romance, um, Baldwin couldn't fit in that. He's too complex, too nuanced to fit in such simple story. Our guest is Eddie Gloud, and he's professor and chair of the Department of African-American Studies at Princeton. His new book is Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own. And if you have questions for Eddie Gloud or if you'd like to join this conversation, let me invite you to do that now. Our toll-free number is available, and you can be part of the program. The number to call is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or Email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. And Eddie Gloud, I'd like to ask you also, uh, before we come up on a break here, about how you see James Baldwin's vision and James Baldwin's sensibility tying in with not only the moment, but in terms of policy and what policies really stem from his thinking, as you see it. Uh, well, you know, I think he clearly saw where the country was going. Uh, you know, people ask me, what would Jimmy say about today? And I said, well, we just need to read what he said about then. And we, we, it would be pretty accurate about now, right? Uh, I think if we return to uh, uh, No Name in the Street and Evidence of Things Not Seen, we'll see Baldwin grappling with a country that has become obsessed with greed, of extraction of resources, of, of, of really doubling down on white supremacy, of turning its back on, on working people, an imperial project, uh, but at the heart of it all is this moral claim um, about character, about who do we take ourselves to be. So I think he would emphasize the fact that we face a choice and that that choice involves more than symbolic gestures of taking down flags and, and, and statues and monuments and then patting oneself on the back and expect expecting gratitude. I think he would want us to, as he would say, do our first works over, Revelations two, chapter two, verse five, right? Go back and tell the story such that we can actually imagine ourselves anew. Um, he would be the poet that he is. On that note, I want to again invite you, our listeners, to join us and uh, please feel free to be part of the program. Toll free number for your calls, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. And we'll continue our discussion with Eddie Gloud, Professor and Chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton. Again, the book is called Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're spending the hour with, uh, and forgive me, Professor Glad. It's Glad, not Glad. I put the U in there, and that probably happens to you a lot. I don't want to be a Clod and not say Glad. So let's leave it, get the pronunciation exact here. And Eddie Glad is professor and chair again of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton. His new book is called Begin Again James Baldwin's America and Its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. And let's bring a caller aboard. Richard, join us. You're on the air. Good morning, and thanks for taking the call. Uh, I really appreciate this uh, this discussion. And, you know, just very brief comment. I just wanted to uh, call attention to something that was briefly mentioned, and that was, that was this classic debate that uh, James Baldwin had with uh, Bill Buckley in 1965 at Oxford. 
And uh, I, I think I only heard it a couple of years ago, but it made such a deep impression on me. The debate was in 1965, so I don't know if that was before or after Watts, but uh, it definitely underscored the pain and grievance of African Americans in a way that this, uh, you know, old white man in Marin County uh, could never have uh, gotten my arms around uh, the way that Baldwin presented it. So for those who are trying to understand what's going on today, I highly recommend uh, tapping into uh, tapping into that debate. Yeah, it's a very revelatory debate in many ways, isn't it, uh, yeah, Professor Glass? Abs absolutely. I, I mean, he had Buckley on the ropes in some ways. Um, I think more than anything, uh, there's a formulation. There's a wonderful book about this, uh, by the way, uh, Nick Buckla, B-U-C-C-O-L-A, uh, uh, who's written a wonderful book just on that debate. Um, um, uh, that I think everyone should read. Um, and he explores the way in which Baldwin uh, kind of distills um, what's at the heart of what's becoming a transition. Right? 65 is an extraordinary moment, not only in the history of American conservatism, but also in the Black freedom struggle. And Baldwin in that moment um, gives voice to uh, the rage, gives voice to the condition of Black America that is that is profoundly important for understanding what happens post sixty five. Um, so I would recommend everyone to read that book by uh, Nick Bukala. And we'll bring uh, another caller board here in just a minute. But I wanted to talk about uh, something that you bring up, which is the last interview James Baldwin did, which was with Quincy Troop. And I think it's important to focus on that because, as you see it, that again shows he was not giving up, even though there were many who thought that perhaps he had given up. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a sense of summation in that interview, right? Where he says, uh, you know, you, he felt like he had become a broken motor, saying the same thing over and over and over again. He said, you can only go to Texas so many times. Um, he said that he knew why the country elected Ronald Reagan. He was a justification for, for their whiteness. Um, but there's a sense in which, like Toni Morrison's Nobel lecture, you know, that moment at the end of Toni Morrison's Nobel lecture where she says, it's in your hands, it's in our hands. Right? Baldwin never gave up on the possibility that we could be otherwise because he had this undying faith in our capacities to be otherwise. We're miracles and disasters at the same time. We can emphasize the disastrous part of ourselves, but we also have to understand that we can be these amazing, impossible aristocrats as he described the young folk uh, in The Fire Next Time, right? Um, so uh, the arc of, 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 of that interview, the arc of the last days of Baldwin's life, to my mind, might echo what, what W.E.B. Du Bois wrote in uh, The Souls of Black Folk uh, in, 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 in response to the death of his son. It's a hope, not hopeless, but unhopeful. Since you mentioned W.B. Du Bois, uh, of course, probably his most famous line was uh, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, but it's also been the problem of the 21st century. And one has to ask, uh, we were supposed to be, remember when Barack Obama was elected president <laughs> in a post-racial yeah. world? Yeah, yeah. That was fantasy, right? With a bitter irony, right? Because they, they could even make, a, even if you're a black man and you become the president of the United States, they could still try to make you dance. Right. I mean, as long as we have an, a country that's organized along the, along the lines of the belief that white people matter more than others, what I call the value gap, uh, where certain lives are valued more than others, as long as that belief obtains, it's going to evidence itself in our social, political, and economic arrangements. We're going to stay on this hamster wheel. We're going well, to continue also mentioned, to do this. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Me, sorry. No, I'm sorry. I was just also thinking about something. The caller mentioned the fire next time. And... Uh, I want to ask you something about that, but I want to get to another caller first. Yafeu joins us from Oakland. Yafeu, sure. good morning. Yes, um, this is Yafeu Kemet calling, and um, it seems that the question I have has already been addressed, but it was about the fire next time as well, and how does it speak specifically to what's going on now, or does it speak specifically about what's going on? That's a great question, brother. Um, 
I read The Fire Next Time and No Name in the Street together. And I think all of us should read them together. The Fire Next Time is The Prophecy, 63. No Name in the Street is The Reckoning, 1972. The Fire Next Time announces in so many ways Baldwin's revolutionary uh, intervention. He inverts the white man's burden and become, it, they become the black man's burden. I'm, as he used to say, I'm not the N-word. Never was, never thought myself to be one. The question is why did white America need to invent the N-word? And until they figure that out, I'm gonna give you back, give you back your problem, he said. You're actually the N-word, not me. So Baldwin inverts it, but he says to his nephew, remember um, in his letter to his nephew, he said, but the strange thing, old buddy, is that we have to love them, we have to save them. You know, we have to love them. In some ways, Baldwin wants to say, the problem is not with black people. The problem that, that we experience in the country is not with us, it's with this, this community who believes that because they're white, they're more valued than others. But we have to show them through our love, through our suffering, that they are not, that they could be otherwise. That's the fire next time. But by no name in the street, Michael Thelwell told me, Michael Thelwell, that young Howard student who used to write for the Howard student newspaper, who became a member of SNCC, who went on to become a, a celebrated writer and a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He said, the later Baldwin, Baldwin's we changes, his audience shifts. He gives up on the idea that black folks task is to save white folks. They have to do that for themselves. But at the very moment in which he makes that move, he doesn't give up on the idea that we can still build a new Jerusalem. So let me put it this way really quickly. We only have a finite amount of civic energy. I don't wanna spend my energy trying to convince the Trump voter not to hold noxious views about race. I wanna spend my energy instead trying to build a world where those views have no quarter to breathe. That's where our energy should be directed. And Baldwin, by the time he gets to no name in the street, people read it as bitter, biting, angry, rageful. He succumbed to black power. No, 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 no. It's a judgment made as a result of a life lived. And so I say you should read the two in tandem. Now, since you mentioned SNCC, uh, there was a very seminal moment for Baldwin when he went to that Freedom Day demonstration uh, in Selma, uh, which was put on by SNCC and saw a share of Jim Clark. Uh, he sort of swallowed uh, his fear and felt fury. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the one of the best stories around the writing of Begin Again was the, is this really quick story. So I, I'm reading um, um, Fern Margie Ekman's biography of Baldwin, the first biography written in 66. And there are all of these amazing quotations from Baldwin in the book. And I'm like, where are these, where are these archives? I need to find this. And no one, no one, Smithsonian, the, uh, Schomburg, no one had them. So a colleague of mine, Imani Perry said, well, why don't you try to call her? I said, she has to be 98 to almost 100 years old. And so she gives me these numbers. So I call the number and lo and behold, it's the house of Fern Margie Ekman. She hasn't passed yet. She's about to move out of the home she's been living in for over 50 plus years. And I meet with her niece and her niece gives me transcriptions because the tapes were lost, but transcriptions of the interviews. And one of the transcriptions involved Baldwin, the interview with Baldwin, not four or five days after he was in Selma. Um, and it's extraordinary to, you know, she tries to render this in the biography. She quotes him, but to read it in its full, in full, Baldwin is the, he is the, no, he's the novelist, he's the writer, he paints the picture. Their helmets look like gar a garden of flowers, right? And he talks about how they were prodding and poking and, 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 and really chastising folk and how people were hungry and they wouldn't let them go get folks to, food to eat. And, and then he says he went from being afraid to being enraged, fury. He wanted to kill them, right? And to read that on the page, I mean, was just mind blowing. Uh, to read it on the page, his rage just literally leaping from every sentence as he tries to describe the debased nature of Sheriff Clark and those sheriffs and, and police officers who chastise those, those, those everyday ordinary people trying to vote. He does sort of come off the page sometimes, really, right into, yeah. <laughs> right into your gut. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I was going to ask you, because you're talking about the fire next time and uh, no name in the street, uh, both of those works, and you really opened my eyes up to this, uh, you started talking about them in terms of Coltrane. 
Yeah, you know, I love John Coltrane. Um, and I, I, what I was trying to do is to make sense of, they, we don't do it too much in the, in the Academy anymore where you have the early Baldwin and the late Baldwin. That's a kind of 80s kind of rendering of him. Um, but, you know, I, I had to encounter this idea that something broke in Jimmy um, in, in the later works, right? James Campbell's horrific biography saying that Baldwin's voice broke in 63 or something like that. Um, and the thing that I kept thinking about was Coltrane, you know, re listening to the later Coltrane and what is his relationship to the early Coltrane. And I just, it took me back to the, my, one of my favorite tracks. In fact, the most important uh, track on Love Supreme and that's Pursuance. Mm -hmm. and, and the way in which, you know, by the end of Pursuance, um, it sounds so dissonant, but it sounds familiar. Right, he's he's still riffing, playing you know a different tonal structure, but he's doing something right. And so I said, this is the analogy, this is how we ought to read him, no matter how dissonant he sounds in those last days. Um, he's still commending to us uh, love. But he's making music you know? with that uh, language too. I mentioned Sonny's Blues, for example. That's an extraordinarily strong example of language reaching musical pitch and musical kinds of tonalities and so forth like you would associate with uh, someone as great and as uh, inimitable as John Coltrane. Uh, I want to ask you also, if I could, sure. uh, about your thoughts. You're a Princeton University professor. Woodrow Wilson's name is coming down there, and uh, you mentioned Confederate statues before and so forth. How do you feel about the actions taken now on behalf of uh, those who feel that Wilson was, and he indubitably was a racist, therefore his name should be taken. You know, my first reaction is hell must be freezing over, <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> you know, between Mississippi doing what he's doing with his flag and Princeton removing Wilson's name from uh, the public policy school and, 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 a, and, a, and one of its residential colleges, I think it's a great thing, uh, a first step, a great step. I mean, I thought the president of Princeton's uh, op-ed in the Washington Post was spot on, you know, he said, we live in a country that has a history of disregarding the effects of, of racism and white supremacy. Um, and the way in which the university has told the story uh, of Woodrow Wilson, who is no, undoubtedly the, the central figure in the history of Princeton becoming a first rate institution uh, has downplayed, in fact, ignored uh, his, his racist views. Um, as the first Southern president elected post-Civil War, he set the country back in so many ways. Um, and, you know, I think that the, the, the big issue is who, we, who do we choose to honor? And when we ask that question, we're asking what values are we commending to, ourselves, to, to us and to our children? And, you know, Prince Wilson will remain a critical voice, a critical component of Princeton's history but it's not the Princeton that Princeton imagines itself to be today or tomorrow. And here's a, a question from a listener named Mary who says, my son started cycling through James Baldwin's work as a teenager and has continued for 25 years, always reading one work or another. He was a skinny white kid and Baldwin spoke to him like no one else. I don't think parents need to question their kids' reading preferences, but how would your guest explain this phenomenon, which is probably common? You know, Baldwin is one of those essayists. His, and I shouldn't say he's, he's not just an essayist, he's a writer, because his novels are really, really important as well. He also wrote um, a play, in fact. Oh, Amen's Corner, right, Amen yeah. Corner, right? And um, um, I, think, I think what it is is that Baldwin, reading him, right, throws us back on ourselves. It, it, it creates the conditions for self-examination, to ask the hard questions of, who am I? What do I? What do I aspire to be? What do I aspire to do? Who do I aspire to be? Right? How do we deal with all of the uh, the stuff in our guts? He brings that, up, if I may, the um, I hate to use this word because it sounds too highfalutin, but ontological questions, really, doesn't he? Questions of oh, being. Oh, questions of being. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. Um, and I think you know, as from adolescence to to adulthood. It's like reading Emerson, you know? You read Emerson as a young man, uh, reading Self-Reliance, and you just think he, you know, it's just this freedom to be whatever you want to be, right? And then by the time you return 
to that essay when you're in your 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 late 20s or early 30s suddenly self-reliance is is much more nuanced and whatnot right these these right there something about the writers who can get to the get to the heart of the matter right? and teach us about the, teach us about the, the the necessity of liberty and freedom right and teach us about the necessity of being honest with ourselves right to to not lie to 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 really use to think of the self as the canvas to create art. That's probably why he became much more of an existentialist because he was looking at that self-authenticity, especially when he was on, living in Paris as an expat. But I've got a tweet here, uh, kind sure. of historical question from a listener named Lowell who says, can your guest speak to the overlooked impact of Baldwin's participation as a young man in the Young People's Socialist League? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there was a moment he, he, he you know, he, there's a moment with William Worthy and, and others. He, he, he had a dalliance with Trotsky, with the Trotskyites and the like. And it shows up again, I think, uh, in um, the latter part of his life when he embraces what he called with Bobby Seale, Yankee Doodle Socialism. <laughs> right. So there's a, there's a sense in which he, he understood uh, what empire was doing, what capitalism uh, uh, the greed that drove capitalism, what it what it meant for a certain kind of self. But I think at the bottom, at, at the heart of his corpus, though, um, isn't so much this ideology because Baldwin is not going to sit comfortably with any doctrine, right? Um, was this insistence on this moral question uh, rooted around the particular kind of self we want we we want to be? I know I'm going back to that, but I think. Um, Whenever he makes that gesture to show the elements of of of, of that socialist encounter, um, um, it, it's always couched within this kind of broader moral claim. Well, you bring us into the destruction of the sanctuary that he lived in in Europe, uh, being overrun with luxury apartment buildings. That sort of serves as a metaphor here, doesn't it? It sure does. And you know, I had a chance to when I was in Heidelberg, I caught a flight to Nice and then took a cab to St. Paul de Vence. Um, and my driver was, his name was Christopher. And, and he was this muscular guy, could look like he was straight from South Jersey. Um, and I imagined him as the black Christophe and tell me how long the trains have been gone, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so he drives me to uh, St. Paul de Vence. And um, I remember walking up the road um, and seeing all of the construction cranes and hearing the damn jackhammer and reading the sign about this, the luxurious panoramic view and looking out and seeing the valley that Jimmy would see. Um, and it was so stunningly beautiful. And then just above my head, our head was, was the village itself. Um, and there was only this little piece of the, of the home left and it was being beaten down by the sun. And um, I was like, Lord Jimmy, they, even your sanctuary wasn't safe from it all. Here's Mark who says, I look forward to reading your book. I just saw the beautiful older documentary, James Baldwin, The Price of the Ticket and want to recommend it to see him and his times. Uh, it is an excellent documentary. I would uh, uh, second that. Dennis has a question though, or actually a statement. He says, I was a student in Istanbul in 67 when Baldwin was there on sabbatical and he was a presence at the college without public visibility. And here's Jane who says, though I realize one shouldn't engage in second guessing a dead person, I wonder what the professor has to say about how Baldwin would regard the Black Lives Matter movement and beyond that, the state of the world in general today. Well, we certainly touched a good deal on that today, but what do you think he would have thought about Black Lives Matter? Oh, he would be wherever the young folk are. That's why in the book, the way I do, you know, I went to visit his gravesite and and I couldn't find it. I was with Carol Weinstein, whom I adore, who is David, David Baldwin's brother, David's partner and the mother of his son. Um, and Carol and I drove to the, to, to the gravesite and we couldn't find it. And, and lo and behold, Baldwin was sitting there in plain sight uh, behind some young folks smoking weed. It was hilarious, actually, it was beautiful. Um, you know, he always wanted to create the conditions for, for, for our babies to, to grow into who they wanted to be. Um, and so I think he would be right there with them. I know he would. Uh, as, as for the Istanbul question, oh my God, there's a ch I have a chapter in the book entitled Elsewhere, yeah. that after King was assassinated, Baldwin collapsed. He attempted to commit suicide in 69. 
um, a failed relationship and, and the like, um, he found uh, Istanbul, the place where he could begin again. Um, and it was a place where he could laugh, full belly laughs, he could rage, he could think, um, and he could try to get his mind wrapped around what he was trying to do in No Name in the Street. Um, man, Istanbul is so important. Uh, but I think he would be um, so, um, he would be so saddened by looking at Erdogan because it's a strong man that he's quite familiar with. Can you also, since we're talking about uh, important uh, contributions of Baldwin's, one that's probably not as well known as many that we've touched on and many that he's best known for, uh, it has some local color to it, so to speak. And that's a 1967 speech he gave at Stanford about where do we go from here? Quite significant in your judgment, I think, yes? Yeah, I love that speech, right? I think it's, um, it's this extraordinary uh, accounting because there's a sense in which Baldwin is trying to tell the story, the true story of what has happened, right? He's trying to give an account so that, because there's this irony, there's this biting irony that the nation is already trying to conscript the civil rights movement into its more perfectionist narrative, right? It's already trying to tell a story about 54 and 55 and, and 1960, and of course, culminating in 63 with the I Have a Dream speech and the March on Washington. It's already trying to tell that story. And Baldwin and King are fighting desperately, right, to, 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 to hold off that conscription, if that makes sense. So he's constantly trying, you know, let me tell you how Stokely Carmichael began, you know? walking those dusty highways and why is he who he is in 67? Let's give an accounting, a real accounting. So I think those, it's, it becomes this kind of narrative battle to try to make the anger and rage of the moment intelligible, right? If that makes sense. It does. And so much of the way you interpret Baldwin makes a great deal of sense, particularly in terms of how we need to face our past and perhaps find our better angels. I wonder if maybe you could provide some sense of the pathway to that as you see Baldwin having provided for us, as opposed to the illusion of who we are. I mean, talking about building some kind of multiracial democracy and building a sense where there is true equality, that came out of his work and that is implicit in his work and it's implicit in what's being struggled in terms of racial justice, I believe. So how does he help us? How does he guide the way as a pathfinder? Well, well, I think two, at least three ways, right? One is he, he's gonna give space. I think he would urge us to open up space for, for mass movements, for grassroots struggle. Right? We're in a moment where everyday ordinary people are clamoring for something different. Um, and we don't want their imaginations to be assaulted by those who are tethered to the status quo. So we're constantly having to, 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 to open up space for those activists who are doing work, who are in fact putting their bodies on the line to open up space. And that involves the second point of putting, bringing pressure to bear on those who claim to be our leaders, those who claim to be politicians, those who claim uh, to be uh, acting on our behalf as representatives of the needs and interests of communities of the least of these, as it were. So in, in effect, holding them accountable. But at the heart of Baldwin's witness is just that, bearing witness. In the Fern Margie Ekman papers, uh, the transcriptions, he offers a definition of witness that has stuck with me. We have to make the suffering real. We have to tell the truth. And for those who deny it, we have to really, really insist on bringing that suffering alive. We have to bear witness for those who didn't survive and for those who survived broken and wounded. In other words, all of us must become witness, witnesses. Some of us must become poets. That's the task of the artist in my view. Um, and, and the lesson that he bequeathed to me is that I have to bear witness. I have to make the suffering real in the midst of everyday ordinary people struggling for a more just world. And once you make the suffering real, it allows or permits the possibility of, to hearken back to your subtitle, beginning again. We need to begin Absolutely. again. Absolutely. In fact, I, I was struck by a quote I'm gonna bring in here, responsibility cannot be lost, it can only be abdicated. If one refuses abdication, one begins again. There it is. There it is. You know, and he's saying that in the novel in light of what has happened to the civil rights movement. It's been shattered, 
folks scatter, folks have gone mad, people have been murdered, thrown in jail. What do you do in that moment? Well, the one thing you can't do is give up your responsibility. What do you, what we have to figure out, and I have a sentence like this in the book, our task in this moment, if we do not give up our response, if we do not abdicate our responsibility, our task is to figure out how to push this damn boulder up the hill again. Yeah, we're all Sisyphus, but we all have the potential to come away toward the New Jerusalem, I think. ultimately. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, there is a message here, certainly, as you have pointed out, of righteous anger, but also of love. And that mixture really is very powerful. And uh, I think also, if I may say so, you've done a remarkable job in bringing Baldwin's ideas and bringing his thoughts and bringing maybe even as important uh, his visceral life to life. So I thank you for that. And I thank you for being with us on this hour of forum. Appreciate so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's Eddie Glad, and he is professor and chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton. And his new book again is called Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. And we have another hour of forum coming your way. We're going to be taking up uh, all kinds of things in the hour ahead. So I think you will want to stay tuned for that and uh, much more to come. Thank you for being a part of this hour and for all of us here at KQED. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.